Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Deborah Kaplan. Deborah Kaplan began learning Yiddish in 2004 as an intern at the Yiddish Book Center and went on to earn her doctorate in Yiddish from Harvard. She is assistant professor of theater at Baruch College and City University of New York. Her articles have appeared in American Theater Magazine, Comparative Drama, New England Theater Journal, Theater Survey, and Modern Drama. She's also a contributor to Pockentrager Magazine. She's the co-founder with Joel Berkowitz of the Digital Yiddish Theater Project and is the author of the recently published Yiddish Empire, the Vilna Troupe, Jewish Theater, and the Art of Itinerancy. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you. So uh, tell me first, what threw you in the direction of Yiddish theater? Sure. Well, I was always interested in theater um, from the time I was a very young child. And so uh, when I got interested in Yiddish, it was sort of a natural curiosity and and combination. Um, I kind of immediately gravitated towards uh, an interest in Yiddish theater and drama. Um, And I I realized very quickly that it was a very underexplored uh, area um, in Yiddish scholarship, that uh, in terms of translations and in terms of availability of materials, there's there's so much more out there um, on uh, non-dramatic Yiddish literature than there is about uh, some of the stories of, of, of Yiddish theater troops and companies and plays, and I just immediately was interested in that. And how does the Vilna Troupe sort of fit into the history um, when we're telling the story of Yiddish theater? Well, the Vilna Troupe was really arguably the most historically significant and most famous Yiddish theater company of all time. Um, they were really a legend um, in Yiddish theater um, over the course of, of decades. They had a huge global presence um, in, in people's imaginations as kind of the premier uh, Yiddish theater. Um, they had kind of a similar kind of uh, role in that way as something like the Moscow Art Theater, which people, you know, would cite as just kind of a, a beacon of modern theater and um, and high quality theater. The Vilna Troupe had a, a very similar reputation. And and they began as a small troupe. Uh, I know that they grew over the course of their history. Um, tell me, like, what what did it offer to these individuals in terms of becoming actors, allowing them to travel, to encounter the new world? What were all the aspects for them, and why did they set out to form the troupe? And what was the mission, if I may? Sure. Um, well, I'll start with your, your first question. Uh, the, the Vilna Troupe at its founding was a company that was made up of young people, of, of young sort of adventurers and uh, people who were just really interested in reshaping and remaking the Yiddish theater, people who had kind of a revolutionary approach uh, to theater making. Um, and I think this was extremely appealing for the youth in the towns and cities that they traveled to, to see this company of people who were in their teens or scarcely out of their teens who were just causing a, a, a sensation um, in the Yiddish theater world. I think that was really exciting for people. Um, and, of course, a life with the Vilna Troupe and a life in the Yiddish theater was a life of travel, um, which also provided a way for people to uh, to access a life that was different than the life that they might have been expected to live in the place that they came from. Was it a different situation for women? Um, it, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I think in, in this period of time, theatrical travel was a different situation for women. Um, but in the case of the Vilna Troupe, the troupe was uh, almost from its very beginning, it was pretty evenly split between male and female actors. And so I think... Um, actors found a lot of camaraderie, kind of no matter who they were in this company. 
But did it give them a chance to sort of get out of a small town and, and really encounter the world? And was it a hard decision for them to make? I think it was an equally hard decision for men. In fact, I think hmm. in some some cases it was a harder decision for men because um, in many cases the men who ran off and joined the theater were supposed were you know they were in yeshivas they were supposed to be studying all day they were they they had sort of very designated tasks that they were supposed to take um, and uh, the theater offered a way of um, rejecting all of that. So I think I think for men and women it was it was something that offered a, a very different pathway than. Uh, than the life that they had sort of been led to expect. Can you tell us a little bit about a few of the actors, some backstories? Sure. Well, so in the book, I um, between every chapter, there's an interlude, a sort of interlude that tells uh, some of the individual stories of these company members because they, they were people who lived really extraordinary lives. Um, there were some total over the course of 20 years, there were over 290 members of the Vilna Troop. Um, and, um, and I, I was able to learn a lot of, of, of their stories. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one story to start. Um, there were, there were a couple of sort of power couples in the Vilna troupe. There were actors who were married or, uh, in a relationship with one another, um, who worked together over the course of their careers, um, often playing opposite one another. And one of those power couples was Alexander Azro and Sonia Alomis. Um, and uh, Azra and Alomis, they had grown up together in Vilna. They knew each other since they were children. Um, they had been childhood friends. Um, and they both joined the Vilna troupe uh, around the same time, just at that moment of its founding. They were some of the founding members. Um, and they were just sort of madly in love with one another. Um, but uh, they ran into a problem when uh, the Vilna troupe's business manager uh, was also in love with Sonia Alomis. And this created a lot of tensions within the company. So when Azra and Alomis decided to get married, they eloped and they sort of ran away in the middle of the night with half of the actors from the company and started their own Vilna troupe. Um, and so for quite some time, there were two different Vilna troupes, one that was run by Alexander Azra and Sonia Alomis and the other that was run by Mordechai Mazel. You have a wonderful picture of the two of them on the Majestic which yeah. is, is absolutely wonderful. America, yeah. yeah. Which makes me want to ask if these were, you know, they sort of had this star quality to them and were they celebrated and did youngsters aspire to become actors and actresses and, you know, go off globe trotting? I mean, absolutely. There was certainly a romance and a mystique to joining the Yiddish Theater. Um, as one of the grandchildren of one of these actors uh, told me, that, you know, for, for his grandfather, it was like running away to the circus. But in this case, the circus was the Yiddish theater. But it was the same kind of thing. There was a tremendous romance and mystique to it. Um, when the Vilna troupe was traveling around Eastern Europe, they learned pretty quickly that they needed to save um, an extra car, an extra train car, uh, just for the extras that they would pick up as they traveled from city to city and town to town. Because as they would be leaving the station, young people would, you know, kind of come following them and beg to join the company. And so they would have a special train car that was just for the extras who wanted to kind of hop aboard and ride with the Vilna troupe. Um, and some of those people would become actors and stay and build their careers in the theater. And, of course, some people just kind of wanted to run away for a little bit. And, and it's true to say, I think you're right, that they really did push the boundaries of Yiddish theater? Yes, they certainly did. And what is that legacy, do you think? Well, so before the Vilna Troupe, there was there was this sense in the Yiddish literary world that the theater was a sort of embarrassment. And this was sort of a long-standing um, 
uh, diatribe in, in Yiddish newspapers and in Yiddish literary criticism. There were all of these writers, including most famously uh, Yudlam and Peretz, who desperately wanted to, as they put it, raise the theater up to the level of other European theaters. Um, they looked at the Yiddish theater and saw um, something that was, um, say, trashier um, than its European counterparts. Now, whether this is fair or not, or whether this critique was, was fully true or not, is, is a matter of debate. Um, but but the, what is, I think, fair to say is that the Yiddish theater was, uh, up until the Zona troops, completely disconnected from the Yiddish literary establishment. That they were really two completely different worlds. Um, with the literary establishment kind of turning down their noses at Yiddish theater um, and wanting a better theater, as they would put it. Uh, the Vilna Troupe, on the other hand, was a group of young people who uh, loved literature and loved the theater in equal measure. Um, uh, before actors were allowed to perform with the Vilna Troupe, they had to take a battery of examinations, um, including uh, language examinations to prove that their Yiddish was good enough. Um, but also including literary examinations. They actually had to study up and read up on Yiddish literature, and uh, a board of actors would quiz them about, you know, the latest Sholomash novel or the latest uh, Sholom Aleichem publication or um, all the things that Mendele had written. They, they had to demonstrate their knowledge, their very deep knowledge of Yiddish literature, in order to be eligible for a speaking part. And so what, what this did is it created a troupe of actors that were sort of beloved by the Yiddish literary establishment and the writers who would write plays for them. Um, and also, uh, it, um, it just sort of fundamentally brought the Yiddish theater into larger conversations about Yiddish literature um, and into that community. So it gave it a credibility? Absolutely. It gave them credibility, and it also enabled them to claim that they were the ones who had finally done this thing that the writers had been asking for forever to have this better, improved theater. Um, you know, again, there are things that the Vilna Troop did that are not that dissimilar to things that happened before, and then there were things that they did that were revolutionary. Um, one of the big things that they did um, immediately was they changed the dialect that was used in Yiddish theater. So in, in Yiddish theater, before the Vilna Troop, uh, the standard dialect was the Voliner dialect, um, which, again, the intelligentsia sort of looked down at as sort of crass and low, um, the Vilna Troupe, founded in Vilna, chose the Litvak dialect, which was, you know, seen by sort of the intellectual literary community as, as a very sort of highfalutin, uh, dialect. So, so they had this sort of sound, uh, that again sort of signified their connections to this intellectual literary world. And they expanded audience, yes, I, you cover that a bit. Um, in terms of reviews and receptions around the world, can you speak a little bit about that? Uh, you know, how, how hard was it for them to begin to make those inroads, or did they just sort of take everybody by storm? Absolutely. Well, the Vilna Troop, one of the things that they did that was quite extraordinary is that they were the first Yiddish theater uh, company to regularly have, uh, you know, significant non-Jewish audience members. Um, the Vilna Troop in many, many different uh, historical moments and locations and contexts uh, would have 50% or more of their audiences be non-Yiddish speaking and non-Jewish. That was something that was very, very common uh, for their productions, which was sort of unheard of before in Yiddish theater. Um, and some of this is just a function of being in the right time and the right place, or the right place at the right time. Um, initially, when the Vilna Troop was founded, it was during World War One, and the Germans had just occupied Vilna, taking it over from the Russians. Let me go back for a second. So when the Russians were in charge of Vilna, they'd outlawed all Yiddish theater and all German theater. 
when the Germans came into Vilna, they outlawed all Russian theater. So there were no professional theaters left in the city whatsoever. There were just these amateur actors, aspiring actors, that started the Vilna troupe. Um, and when they started performing, they were sort of the only show in town. They were the only theater in the city because all of the other theaters had left because of the war. So their, their first audiences were um, half or more uh, German soldiers during World War I who you know, were looking for theatrical entertainment, and the city just had very little to offer. And those audiences uh, just loved them, and they kept coming back and back again, telling their friends, so that you know, when the Vilna Troop comes to Germany later in the 20s, they already have kind of a word of mouth about them. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Dybbuk? Absolutely. Uh, thank you. <laughs> the Vilna Troop was the first theater company uh, ever in any language or any place uh, to produce the Dybbuk. And uh, their production, their first production premiered on December 9, 1920. So incidentally, we're slowly coming up to the 100th anniversary of that first production of the Dybbuk. Um, before the Vilna Troop's production of the Dybbuk, the play was, was seen by almost everybody as uh, unperformable. Um, uh, a lot of writers critiqued it as too ethnographic or too sort of pretentious. Um, nobody really understood how to stage it or who the audience would be. And there were many, many people who told Anstey to sort of give up on the project. Um, Anstey, who uh, was towards the end of his life writing the Dybbuk, um, really became obsessed in the last years of his life with, with uh, finding a theatrical home for it. And he, he saw its potential as a play, um, and he really wanted to see it staged. Unfortunately, he died before that happened. But just a couple weeks before he died, he met with the members of the Vilna Troop and started to talk with them about a production. Um, so the Vilna Troop decided to produce the Dybbuk um, almost as kind of a publicity stunt. Uh, they announced their decision at Anstey's funeral in front of a crowd of 80,000 mourners. Uh, they vowed that they would produce the Dybbuk um, exactly 30 days after Anstey's death to commemorate the traditional Jewish mourning period of his death. Um, 30 days, of course, is a very short time to prepare a production um, and a very short time to prepare a production that is so involved uh, as something like the Dybbuk. Um, so they really had to scramble to make this happen. But because of the way they announced it and because of, of, of the publicity about Anki's death, um, people turned out in droves to see what they were going to do. Um, and what they found was a play that was unlike anything that had ever really been seen before. Um, and this, you know, this was kind of the response both from Yiddish-speaking Jewish audiences and also from Polish audiences who quickly became interested in the kind of experimental, the theatrical experimentalism of the play um, and its, its pushing forward of theatrical modernism. And without ruining the end of the book, um, can you just elaborate a little bit about why you think or what we know about why it disbanded? Sure. Well, like like many uh, kind of cultural phenomena, there there were many factors involved. Um, I think that uh, one of the factors is that the Vilna Troop inspired the creation of so many companies that uh, were doing really theatrically innovative work that uh, the Vilna Troop itself became a little old-fashioned in the end. Um, by the time they disbanded in 1936, there were all of these younger actors, the same age that they had been when they started, who were, you know, they were competing with, who were doing really innovative, groundbreaking, cutting-edge work um, that made the Vilna Troops later work seem a little tired in comparison. So that, that was part of it. 
Um, part of it, of course, was the shifting tides of uh, audiences and support for Yiddish theater in the 1930s, which got really, really difficult as, as the 30s wore on, both in the United States and in Poland, um, as a lot of more and more Jewish young people uh, didn't want to see work in Yiddish anymore, wanted to see work in Polish or English, depending on where they were. And a last question for you. If you could um, see any of their performances, is there one that you would love to be in the audience for? Oh, that's such a wonderful question. Um, without question, I would want to see the Dybbuk. I would want to go to the first production of the Dybbuk in 1920 because people had no idea what was going to happen, no idea what to expect, and it just became a sort of cultural turning point. Um, I, I would have loved to be there on that opening night. Great. Well, thank you again for joining us. And for the book, again, for our listeners, it's Yiddish Empire, the Vilna Troupe, Jewish Theater, and the Art of Itinerancy by Deborah Kaplan. Thanks, Deborah. Um, always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, and we ho hope you'll keep writing about the Yiddish Theater. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Thanks. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a podcast of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. I'm Sarah Quiet, fellow at the Yiddish Book Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to episode 81, Translating Experimental Yiddish Poet Celia Dropkin, where translator Faith Jones discusses the acrobat, the selected poems of Celia Dropkin. Seid mir gesund und stark. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.